technology, and it's super cool, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bulls. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. Uh, you're listening to Anthro Alert. This show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. So we believe this show is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an, of an anthropological perspective. We like to preface each of our shows with the disclaimer that the statements that we make and the opinions that we express are exclusively our own opinions, um, and, and they don't necessarily represent um, anthropology as a discipline, USF Anthropology Department, USF Student Government, um, any other well-known people who may, may or may not have an opinion. Or our opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so so my name is Renee. And I'm Spencer. And today we, uh, we have a great show. It's a beautiful day in Tampa today, so we have a great show. Dr. Rebecca Campbell is a researcher, and she'll, she'll, she'll be our guest today. So she's a researcher at the University of Connecticut working on a National Science Foundation project that aims to understand cultural models and social networks and how they relate to success for women and underrepresented minorities in diverse engineering undergraduate deg degree programs. She's in the process of disseminating her dissertation research, which looked at issues of equity for racial, ethnic, and linguistic groups in elementary schools here in the Florida heartland. And that project is what we'll be talking about today. Dr. Campbell, why don't you uh, say hello to our listeners? Hi, everybody. I'm really glad to be here, Spencer and Renee. Great. And we are happy to have you. So let's just hop right into uh, some questions here. Uh, let's talk more about your dissertation project. Why don't you tell us more about what you did and what you were looking at? And um, for all of our non-Florida listeners um, or non-local Florida listeners, why don't you describe what the Florida heartland is and, and where it's located? Sure. Well, my research looked at equity in elementary schools, and the setting was the Florida heartland, which is an area of six counties near Lake Okeechobee. And the neat thing about the Florida heartland, as anybody in those counties might tell you, is the culture. And so the thing about the Florida heartland culture is um, we have a lot of the cracker culture in the area. So we have a lot of folks um, wearing cowboy hats, cowboy boots. We have a lot of agriculturalists, a lot of people working in the fields. We have orange groves, cattle, things like that. So that's the setting of my research. And like I said, uh, basically I went into this looking at um, if there were any concerns of educational equity for the different groups in the area um, because this area uh, is undergoing a lot of migration and it has done so through its whole history but especially since the 1950s when they started getting a lot of Latinos coming into the area. So to sum up the main point of my research was to look at if there was a difference in school resource access for different groups, racial, ethnic, and linguistic, and to really look at what does schooling look like in this context, both in the classroom, the school, and the community. That's really interesting. Um, so why don't you tell us more about maybe uh, 
the demographic makeup of the schools you were in and why these important or why these issues are important to look at and evaluate in the in the first place sure well the district has uh or at least it did at the time i did my research um and the schools as well the demographics may vary from schools maybe 60 percent latino to 80 percent or higher latino students uh, and then you may have between 0%, maybe 7% African-Americans, and the rest are whites. But you'll also do have a significant Hmong population as well as some Haitian Creole speakers. So that's the demographics uh, in terms of race We do and ethnicity. There's a lot of diverse languages being spoken in the area, as I mentioned. Um, and those include, of course, Spanish, English, Hmong, Haitian Creole, but also numerous, numerous American Indian languages that are being spoken by many of the Latinos in the area um, who actually come from Mayan cultures. Um, more recently, these folks have been coming directly from Mexico about the last 20 years or so, um, many of them coming on H-2A visas, not all, of course. Um, and some of these folks have actually been living in the heartland for several generations. Others are more new coming. So um, that's a little bit about the demographics of the area in terms of languages and people. Mm -hmm. uh, what is an H-2A visa? An H-2A visa is a program that, um, because we, we grow a lot of food in the United States, uh, of course, as you know, have various crops. And we need folks to pick to harvest um, or else we wouldn't be able to enjoy the fruits and vegetables that we enjoy now. And that work is very strenuous. It's hard. It's hard on the body. There's not a lot of benefits that come to doing such work. The pay sometimes, you know, often is not what it should be. And so the government has created a program. They've actually had this program for many years. Um, and throughout time, it's had different names. Um, for example, um, the Bracero program was a program where folks came in from places, including Mexico, to do work. Some worked on railroads. Some worked in other areas. Um, and then later on, that program went through different changes. Sometimes it closed down. Um, but as we had new immigration laws and things like that, the program changed. And in its current form, the H-2A visa is uh, awarded to some people who want to come in and harvest. And so some people, for example, may come in from Mexico for the harvest season, and then they may go back um, because the H-2A visa is not permanent citizenship. So in um, the heartland, you do have some people who are on these H-2A visas, and then you have people, like I say, who have been in, in the heartland for generations. Hmm. So coming back to your research at the schools, why did you feel like the issues that you were looking at were, why did you feel like those were important to evaluate and specifically in, in the heartland? Well, based on my anthropological training, I thought, okay, based on the area's demographics, its history, um, maybe there's some issues. You can never, as an anthropologist, go into a place and assume. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something, you know, very important for all social scientists. And so based on the area's demographics, um, I thought, you know, the questions that I'm asking are really questions that you could ask in many different contexts. And the Heartland County that I did my research in um, they have a great track record in terms of meeting the needs of students. The schools are good. The teachers are all excellent. They're doing a great job. Um, but I did um, wonder, you know, is there 
any issues with different groups accessing school resources because we all know that in the United States, there is these issues. It is true, I think I could say in the United States that um, it's been traditional or existed for many years that different groups may have different access to school resources. You can look at school segregation, um, we had separate but equal, and of course it wasn't separate but equal, it was separate and unequal. But the point is, is that, you know, based on all these things going on in the area, uh, the movement of people to the area, its agricultural roots, its religious roots, um, I knew that these questions would be important to ask. And the broader theoretical question that I was trying to address is, is how is social inequality reproduced? How are people ushered into reproducing inequality? And so that was the overarching question that I wanted to address, which is a very deep question. It's very hard to answer. It's kind of abstract. And so based on the demographics of the area uh, and its history, I thought that, well, a, a great place to investigate inequality is in the schools, and many social theorists have written about that extensively. And, and it is true that the schools are one of the first social structures in which children are enculturated. And so I wanted to understand how people learn about different people's places in society. And so because of the area's demographics and so forth, I thought that this would be a good place to start. Hmm. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And those are a lot of difficult questions to, uh, to approach or, you know, to find any sort of answer <laughs> for. Um, I think before we go any deeper into uh, your research and some of the findings that you had, we're going to transition into a short music break, and we'll come back with a message from our sponsors. We'll see you then. All right, so you're listening to Anthro Alert, courtesy of Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We are in the midst of a conversation on um, so uh, how schools enculturate um, education here in the Florida heartland. So, all right, Spencer, what's our, what's our next question? So we're going to get into more um, about the specifics of your research, Dr. Campbell. So we're interested in and, um, you know, you are addressing some tough questions. So what kind of uh, methods did you use to address some of these questions, um, anthropolo anthropological or otherwise? And then what were some of the findings that you um, that you could isolate from your dissertation? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, my methods were quite extensive um, because, as any anth good anthropologist will tell you, there's a need to cross-check your data. You always want to try to measure something through from different angles to make sure that what you're finding is accurate. And if you're finding different things from different angles, you would need to then investigate why that is. So my methods included 46 interviews, over 40 home visits with students and their families, over 90 interviews, um, pardon me, over 90 classroom observations. Uh, most of those were all day and they were across different grade levels, K through five, across two different schools, because again, one of the big things in anthropology is that we're comparative in our approach. So I wanted to see if these findings were similar across the two schools. I also did archival research. Um, 
I did surveys, three surveys. One of those was a large language survey that I conducted with uh, two elementary schools and a middle school in the Heartland, um, which was very informative uh, in terms of some of the languages of the families that were speaking. Um, I also went out into the community. Uh, again, it's very important in anthropology to understand the context of what you're observing. So. If you're trying to learn about schools, you cannot really only learn about them by going in the schools. You have to go out there in the day-to-day -day in your ethnography and really understand as best you can what daily life is like among different segments of the population. So I would go to different cultural events. I went to events at churches, um, different events they had on the, their main street where they would have like Black History Month celebrations. I also went to um, this big event uh, in the community um, for um, El Dia de la uh, Virgen Guadalupe, um, which is December 12th, um, and there was a lot of indigenous dancers there. So again, community observations, school observations, including the classroom and office, interviews, surveys, archival research, secondary analysis, so much um, data was collected. Um, and some of the, my major findings, um, I actually had several, but I picked out a few to talk about today. And those were three of those. The first one is that the schools I found were doing a really good job in providing education and programs. And I have some suggestions uh, that if they were enacted could really maximize the benefits of the programs and the education that's being offered. I also found um, that how the schools and the people in the schools, including teachers and even the Florida Department of Education, how they measure and think about race and language deserves a closer look. And I'll talk about why in just a minute. And then the third finding that I would like to share with you today is that some school employees called migrant advocates are actually playing a really important role in uh, providing healthcare access for people in the community. And this was something when I initially looked at it, I was kind of surprised that, that we were having this um, other function that they were being served. So those are the three major findings that I found. Um, and to kind of talk about the implications, why are they important? Um, or or how, what are my recommendations about how we can improve the good things that are already going on? And so for the schools and the programs that they are providing, um, one of the ways that they could maximize the benefits to their students is to provide structural tools to help all students equally access school resources. So those things include things like transportation after school, rides home, um, additionally uh, providing documents in a language that the families can understand at a little higher percentage than they do now. Um, so having, you know, uh, more availability of translators would also be helpful. And my second point in terms, and just to kind of back up for a minute, again, what I found a lot of good things going on. I found a lot of teachers using culturally responsive pedagogy. Several teachers were really aware of their students, and they uh, sought to pick books and things like that that the students um, could really um, speak to. I'm just going to get a sip of water yeah. real quick. Okay. So, so as we're thinking about like defining some terms, um, so so one of the words that that just jumped out at me that I was like, oh, wait, what does that mean? Was uh, pedagogy? <coughs> yeah, um, pedagogy is. I'm going to take a stab at defining this because I don't actually. Maybe Dr. Campbell can clear this up for us. But um, 
I imagine that um, pedagogy is the way that you sort of, um, it's methods of, of teaching, I, I believe. Uh, Renee? Yeah, I mean, wh well, I am, com I am so so ignorant about about the word and, and the and the language, um, and how because I hear it and I'm like, oh, and I think, oh yeah, like I hear it in context and I think, oh yeah, I know what that means, but then all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, actually, I somebody asks you to yeah. define it <laughs> and yeah, you're no, just I like studying. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, let, let's play let's play a song. We'll take a break. Um, I will see if I can find a a definition that I'm happy with for pedagogy, and then we'll we'll get back to this conversation. Um, all right, so let's see. We are playing some music. While well, you're listening to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide 24-7 at bullsradio.org. So before we get started, I just want to say, hey, have you ever wanted to go to the USF Botanical Gardens but didn't know what to do there? Well, Connect with the Botanical Gardens Club, and we will show you the way. The Botanical Gardens Club volunteers at the gardens, grows vegetables each semester, and has recyclable arts and crafts projects. If you can't make it to any of those exciting events, come to our monthly socials. Join us on Bullsync and Facebook or email usfbgc at gmail.com to receive updates on all of our events. So you're listening to Anthro Alert, the show where anthropology talks about different things. And <laughs> 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 today, today we are talking about um, enculturation, schools, uh, migration, language. Uh, it's a lot yeah. to unpack in today's conversation. But we left off. Uh, well, I left off being inquisitive and confused about the terminology, um, which is like a you know, it's a, it's an easy word to define. But I'm just stumped by it. Pedagogy. Okay, well, why don't I, now that I've had a sip of water and my throat is back from the dead, I know our listeners were burning with desire to wonder, what is pedagogy? <laughs> and then we left them hanging with a song. Well, I'm back to tell you guys. Pedagogy is how teachers teach, but also why they've decided to teach that way. So it's the things that they think about. A lot of teachers do research. A lot of teachers read, art, you know, they may be reading scholarly articles and books. They get trainings. So pedagogy is all of that, why you teach and how you teach as you do. And so culturally responsive pedagogy, which I kind of mentioned, is when you're teaching in a way that's really building on the home language and culture, and you're bringing that into the classroom. Okay. Now that we have that cleared up, uh, why don't we hop back into, um, you were explaining three of the findings that you had found from your dissertation. Um, you had already explained the first one. I think you were into your second point. Yes, thank you. The second one was that the way that the schools measure and think about race and language and ethnicity deserves a closer look. And the reason why is because it has a lot of implications. For example, Schools create school advisory councils based on the makeup of the students, of the student population. So, for example, if your school was 50% white, 20% African American, and 30% Latino, you would want to have your school advisory council reflect that. And th that's actually uh, laws that stipulate that. So we want to make sure that we're measuring these things well. Another reason why it's important to measure these things well is so that teachers can use that in their culturally responsive teaching. 
And so one of the things that brought to my attention that we could maybe improve the way it was being measured was when I was doing school observations in a school office and several times um, families would come in and the school in this case would always ask several questions about language as the law stipulates but they also importantly and I think did a great job in this added some of their own questions so the school was also asking things like what is the parents native language and then the issue arose when several parents said, oh, my home language is Nawa or Triki or Huasteco or Mixtec. Um, and so what, when parents would say that, and these are all Mexican indigenous languages of cultures that have existed in Mexico for hundreds or thousands of years, Mayan culture. We also had some families speaking Zapotec as well. And so what would happen is when the families would come in and say that they spoke these languages, the school wrote down Spanish. Um, and I was instructed when I, you know, I did a lot of volunteering in my observations, you know, um, helped out whenever needed. And that was the instruction given, you know. Um, if the families say that they speak any of these types of languages, this is what I was told, go ahead and write down Spanish. And so, again, the reason why that's something that maybe we want to address is because if we're trying to be culturally responsive in our teaching, we really need to know, have a little bit more accurate understanding of our students. Um, so in terms of my second finding, in terms of why is looking at how the schools measure and think about race, language, and ethnicity, why is that important? Why does that deserve, deserve a closer look? Because it has a lot of implications. And just a second follow-up to that is that it's also important to accurately measure race and ethnicity, again, for culturally responsive teaching. And I found an instance where there was a little bit of an inaccuracy in how the school was doing it. As any good anthropologist will do, before you go into an area, you need to do everything that you can to understand that context. And that could be looking at census data, if there's books that have been written about it, um, maybe you do archival analysis and look at the newspapers. So I did that. I looked at school accountability reports for the Heartland region I was looking at, and um, I got a good understanding of the area's demographics. But when I was looking at the school records, the raw school records that were de-identified, uh, I didn't have any student name or anything like that, I was really surprised and my jaw hit the floor to find out that in the middle school there was actually 10% of the students were American Indian. And that is a huge number, but that's also a huge number for an area like the Florida Heartland where you don't typically associate that with a with a significant population of American Indians. And so I did, you know, once I found this inconsistency because again, the school accountability report wasn't saying that. I looked I looked at the data and what I found after talking to the Florida Department of Education was that if you state that you are Latino, you are not reported in any other category. So Latino mm -hmm. is an ethnic, ethnic group and racial groups as we all know are, we believe them to be categories like white or black or so on and so forth. And so it turned out that a large portion of the 10% of the middle school students, a large portion of them had said they were both Latino and American Indian. So instead of reporting that there's 10% American Indian students in that school, they were reporting that there was about 1%. So that's a really significant difference. And again, it raises these questions of how can we be culturally responsive? How can we have school advisory councils 
how can we really understand our students the best way that we can if, if we don't have an accurate understanding of them? Mm-hmm. And um, the third um, point, you know, to say why that's important, which again is that migrant advocates are providing this important um, services, including healthcare services. I'm actually co-authoring a paper with this uh, with Dr. Heidi Castaneda, who's in the anthropology department here at the University of South Florida. And uh, in her research, she um, had some data to add to some of the claims that I've made. And, and uh, what I did with some of my interviews is I talked to migrant advocates and I asked them to tell me about their day, their typical day, what are some of their responsibilities. I also rode around with them a lot. I went to home visits with them. I was welcomed into people's homes. Um, and I, it was it really, um, one of, just to share with you one quick observation that kind of demonstrates this is once I was uh, in a, a home with a migrant advocate and a mother, and the mother was asking the advocate um, what she could do because her husband had broken his uh, a bone in his hand. And the mother brought out the x-ray, and they were conversing about what she should do. And so I knew at that point uh, the migrant advocates are playing this other role. They're giving advice about the type of clinics that will accept folks and maybe not ask, ask for documentation, maybe allow them to pay in cash, um, maybe they won't give them any trouble. Um, but the migrant advocates are also um, bringing children to their eye appointments. Um, they're helping them get their birth certificates. Um, uh, another migrant advocate even told me about a time when she had to take a mother to the hospital because she needed mental health. Uh, she had a mental health issue going on. Another woman was being um, abused by her husband, and she also needed to be, you know, taken to this place. So, um, these women uh, and and one man, these migrant advocates, are actually playing this really important healthcare role. I had a question to go back a little bit when we were talking about how the schools, how the schools um, would not accurately document like the language spoken at home. Um, what what was the uh, what was the reason for that? Well, I have my theoretical explanations as to what I think was going on. And then, of course, if you talk to people there, um, they're just trying to do the best job that they can. And, I, again, I think they are doing a good job in the schools. I don't want any of my comments to kind of come off as being overly critical because I observed daily great things that teachers, administrators, paraprofessionals were doing. So just want to put that out there. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we had this miscommunication um, was this thing called ideology, okay? So an ideology is like a set of ideas that helps us understand our social world. And so in the United States, we have this ideology, this idea that l- connects people who we perceive to be Latino, it connects them with the Spanish language, so because these folks came in and appeared a certain way, and many of them did also speak Spanish, because they um, are perceived visually a certain way, the expectation in the United States is then that, oh, they speak Spanish. So I think all we need to do here is a little uh, training, a little maybe clarification of policy, and probably this never came up. Probably there hasn't been this discussion as to, okay, you know, the language that these folks are saying that they're speaking is actually not Spanish. So um, I think that that's a really important finding. Um, And again, to explain why we have uh, this 
miscommunication going on is because of ideology. And just to kind of add, in Mexico, they have this similar ideology that points to um, indigenous languages as dialects or dialectos. Um, and I heard people in the heartland also calling those American Indian languages dialectos instead of lenguajes, which are languages. So again, there's this ideology in Mexico that if it's not a written language, if it's an indigenous language, that it's a dialecto. Hmm. Um, so it, that it's not a lenguaje or a language. And so, you know, so we have a lot of different things in terms of what's causing this miscommunication. We have this ideology in Mexico that some of the Latina teachers and, and white teachers as well are reproducing because that's what they've been taught. And then we also have these mainstream ideas in the United States that link people and their language together. And it's kind of like the same thing that we all uh, ha can understand. If you ever picture your, you've come across somebody and you're really surprised about how they spoke, that you weren't mm -hmm. expecting them to, to have a particular accent or a particular dialect. And when they spoke, spoke, you were surprised. You asked them where they came from. Mm. You know, I, get, I, I do that all the time because I'm just an ignorant person. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm always surprised at, uh, one, my ignorance, and two, just the, uh, the diversity of people. And, and uh, Yeah, so I, I understand what you're saying. There is. There is a huge diversity. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious – did you, um, you know, how long did you spend in the Heartland community with teachers and, and families? And, and did you commute back and forth or did you end up um, living somewhere with, within the community? Well, I began this research in January of 2014 and that's when I made some of my, some of my initial site visits. I met with the superintendent of schools, of course, to ask his permission, mm -hmm. fill out the paperwork required by the university and so forth. And so the first half of 2014, I, I, you know, I was in and out meeting with principals, asking permission, um, driving around, just trying to, anytime anybody moves to a new area, trying to learn the lay of the land. Mm -hmm. um, and then I officially began collecting the data in the summer of 2014 when I moved to the Heartland. So I actually relocated. I rented a townhome. Mm. Other options for anthropologists are renting a room from somebody in the community, mm -hmm. which may be difficult if you have a family. But... So I began the research in, in summer of 2014. I attended teacher training workshops that the elementary schools would have. Um, and then I basically went back to school. You know, mm -hmm. when the school year started uh, in the fall of 2014, I was there every day. Um, oh, okay. And so in the beginning of the school year, I worked in the school's offices, um, which was really important because, again, I was able to learn about how the schools register students. But I also learned about what um, interaction between families and the school looked like. Okay. Um, and when language issues would arise, I was able to capture that. So after I worked in the schools, I began my daily classroom observations. Um, and so that brings me all the way back to mid-2015. And so after the end of the school year, I officially moved, you know, out of the heartland. So I was living there for about a year. Okay. And then after I moved away, I would occasionally come back, um, you know, to do other observations. And I'll, in fact, be back um, this month uh, disseminating the findings of this study and providing write-ups of the report to stakeholders so that uh, hopefully these suggestions that I have written down that I can share with your listeners – that they can imp, you know implement those if they see that they see the rationale I've provided as to why I think they can um, help improve the areas that need to be improved. Mm. So, um, so it's like a, a three-year project. I, I'm curious to know how the leadership in that community has changed. So, you know, are, 
were there changes in principal, changes in superintendent, and changes in school board membership throughout this time? Well, that's a really great question, and I don't know if I would have thought to ask that if I was a listener to someone talking about this, but um, there actually has been a lot of changes. Um, the superintendent did change, you know, at the end of my, uh, when I was working in the schools, there was a, an election because in, in the Heartland and some other Florida counties, um, the superintendent is actually an elected official. So a new superintendent was elected, and I will be um, stopping by his office um, sometime this July. I've spoken with him. We just need to get a day. Um, I've also um, spoke to the principal at one of the schools, um, and this individual is, you know, uh, receptive. Um, but at the other school, there's actually it has been a change in leadership. So um, that is – I will be presenting the findings to the new leadership – but that is something to think about, you know, in anthropology and other social sciences. We know that culture is always changing and people in different positions are always changing. So, um, you know, that's definitely something to keep in mind. But that's why writing up the report is so helpful because um, even if we do get new leaders, having this document um, will help them, again, you know, kind of understand my uh, observations, my rationale, my recommendations, and I wrote in the document, and as I will tell them when I meet with them, I do make myself available if they would like for me to come in a another occasion, if they have questions, um, if they'd like me to speak with um, maybe someone who's doing some teacher training um, to kind of, you know, clarify anything so that um, I can help them as best I can, because that's what applied research is all about. Mm -hmm. It's about looking at a context and and understanding that context of course trying to add to theory but also it's about really improving social conditions so um, you know you definitely want to follow up with your research in terms of sharing these applications these recommendations with the stakeholders and so you're right I never really thought about this as being like a three-year project I kind of thought about the project more of that year that I was do actually doing the research but it is. It's it a long, long-term project for sure. So, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about those recommendations. Um, so we'll play a short song, and then we'll be back in a few. All right, you're listening to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio. Um, today we've been having a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Campbell out of the University of Connecticut, a graduate of our Ph.D. program. And we've been talking about the, her dissertation work here in the, uh, the Florida heartland and where we, when we left off, she was about to give us more information on the actual recommendations that she had. So let's, mm -hmm. let's start at that point. Can you summarize those for us? Okay, great. Sure. Um, and I have several, but I've picked three that I think match to um, some of the topics we've mentioned today. And one is I think that um, the great work that the schools do could really be magnified if they were able to improve their language accessibility. And they could do this by having more Spanish translators and also considering hiring or having a community member volunteer um, to serve as translators for other smaller but significant minority communities. For example, these would be speakers of like Haitian Creole and Hmong. Um, we could also consider having a migrant advocate um, who speaks Mixtec because that's the largest uh, indigenous language group that I found. Um, and hiring folks from these cultures um, would help the schools um, be able to communicate with families better. 
Um, another thing that would be helpful is uh, if the schools created a cheat sheet. So a cheat sheet would be um, like a piece of paper with maybe 50 common things that teachers tend to write home to students as parents in the planner. And so if at the beginning of the school year, um, someone from the district or a school or together a group of teachers came up with these list of 50 items and then they were translated by a community member or someone in the school, then these quote cheat sheets could be shared with all the teachers and it would really help um, some parents with communication. Another thing that I found um, that would be really useful is to, if the school were to harness the resources of their middle and high school students. I had um, a middle school honor student um, who was very, very intelligent. Um, she did help me with some translation and um, I also asked her to translate um, some math vocabulary cards um, that one of the teachers wanted to use with the student. And so she did that and she came back and she told me um, that in fact it was really useful because um, a few weeks later her teacher asked her to help an incoming student and um, her ability to say a lot of these words in Spanish um, and, and these kind of mathematical concepts that she hadn't really been thinking about in her native language um, really helped her help this other student. So I believe that harnessing the resources of your um, talented middle and high school students to help the elementary schools would actually have uh, results that would be amplified. Um, the second recommendation that I think is important is these structural mechanisms for accessibility and those include things like hiring more bus drivers to drive buses that students could ride home from after school programs and um, these after school programs are very important. In one school that consistently is a A ranking school, they have a after school program that's attended by over 90% of students because the students live in the neighborhood, teachers give them rides home and that school does very, very well. The other school I worked in also does well, um, but their after school program is less attended and transportation is an issue. Families told me it is an mm. issue. So if the schools could um, focus on structural ways like that to improve accessibility of school resources, that would, that would really maximize what they're already doing that's great. And then the last recommendation I have for the schools is to improve their knowledge of families. And a couple ways that they can do this um, would be by making home visits. And in the report I have for the schools, I have um, citations for literature and also explanations that I give about the ways that schools can do that. And <clears throat> they could use the funds of knowledge approach, which basically states that um, teachers would go to homes um, that they don't have to go by themselves. They can go in pairs. The migrant advocates make home visits all the time, so they could also go with migrant advocates if they wanted. Um, and so the funds of knowledge approach, you learn about the home, learn about the family, and then build upon that in the classroom. Um, and so again, drawing on that um, knowledge of the families um, would be very beneficial for so many reasons, and that would help them with their culturally responsive teaching that they're already doing to an extent already. Um, but if we could just, again, buttress that and maximize that by improving knowledge of families, I think that um, you know, it would help an already good school district become a little better. Um, so those are some of my major recommendations. And again, the schools are doing a great job. Um, I have some ideas about how they could do a better job, and I'm really uh, excited to hopefully working with them in the future to help them, you know, actualize or enact some of these ideas. Those, those are really fantastic uh, recommendations that you have, and 
You know, I think this is this is a really great example, I think, of what applied anthropology is and what we're the point we're trying to get across here at Anthro Alert of, you know, the real value that anthro like anthropological research can have on real world problems. You know, anthropology sometimes gets a bad rap of really esoteric research that maybe people don't care about, but you know, it's it's this focus in applied anthropology where we can really get down and, and help people um, address these issues or, or solve these problems. So the next question I have is, you're a recent graduate of the program. Um, so what was the, just briefly summing up here uh, today, what was your transition like um, going from PhD student to, you know, where you are now at, at the University of Connecticut? And you know, what, ad what advice may you have for... Um, you know, uh, PhD students or master's students now and, you know, um, making that transition into the quote-unquote real world? Well, what really worked for me, and this may not work in all situations, is that I really leaned in. And what that means is I had a situation, a job at the time when I was a student, and I knew that there was an opportunity potentially to continue that job at the University of Connecticut. And so I asked, you know, could they create this position for me? And they could. Um, but I think some advice that would be helpful for students is that um, I don't think you should go through a program and say, okay, for sure, I'm definitely going to be working in academia because the reality is, is there's not that many jobs. Um, of course, my first choice is to become a tenured professor at a research university. I'm still hanging on to that dream. I've given myself five years to achieve that dream. And if that doesn't happen, uh, I have two alternate paths. So I think you know, having your dream, of course, we all want to have our dream. Why would we go to graduate school and take six and a half years like I did for a PhD if we didn't have this ultimate dream that we really wanted to do? So I think it is important to reach really high, but to also be realistic. So my alternate plans are, if I cannot be a tenured professor, are to be a, a researcher at a research university is kind of what I'm doing now. Um, and if that doesn't work out, to be a K-12 teacher, because in any of these three great career paths, I would be able to impact policy um, and research on my field, whether it's, you know, at the schools themselves, like on the ground as a teacher and, and maybe an administrator one day, or, again, by, you know, doing research, writing articles um, and disseminating those findings and hopefully making change that way. Um, the transition uh, to the real world for me has been very smooth, but I know for some of my colleagues it has not. Um, so I would just encourage them to, you know, stay connected to other graduates. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask advice um, or to, um, you know, continue that, keep that line of communication open. And I think pursuing jobs outside of academia is also a great idea. I know some of my colleagues are working at Nielsen. They're working for government agencies, HIV AIDS clinics. Um, so there's so many choices that you could do with an anthropology degree. Um, but I would just say, you know, my number one piece of advice was don't graduate from a program thinking you're going to step into a tenured position. Um, but that there's so many great options and that anthropology and other social sciences are so important for making, honestly, not to sound cheesy, but for making the world a better place um, because we try to be thoughtful in our observations and conclusions and sincere in making recommendations that we think will really help. Yeah, so, so my big takeaway from, from hearing from what you said for some advice that I'm going to take for myself is you know, stay connected, Build a community, and as a graduate student, um, I think I can I can do that, and hopefully uh, I'll I'll end up okay w when I grow up to be an anthropologist. <laughs>
think what I took away was keep your options open. You know, don't uh, don't narrow your focus so much so that you know you have a limited pool for employment. Um, you know, keep an open mind and and uh, keep your op- options open. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up the show for this week uh, with Renee and Dr. Rebecca Campbell. We thank her for coming on the show and talking to us about her research. Uh, I'm sure you guys enjoyed it. We did. So if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, these episodes are being recorded and will shortly be put on the AnthroAlert website. Yeah, AnthroAlert.com. Really easy to remember. AnthroAlert.com. Absolutely. And if you like the music that was on the show, that um, will also be listed on the website with links for your enjoyment. Yeah, so that'll, that'll be available at 4 p.m. So check those out if, if you would like. With that, we will see you guys next week and have a good weekend. Cool. Thanks.